Hey, Cambridge, how's it going? Good, good. It's nice to be back. I've been here once before, and uh, so it's cool to come back. Uh, if you, we haven't met, I'm, my name is Merrick. One of the reasons we haven't met is because I'm an ex-Renew campus pastor, so that's how I'll position myself. Uh, back in September, I was uh, the campus pastor at Milton, Milton campus, uh, then back in September, October, we shifted some things around, and so I've moved into a different role. I'm doing a lot of our media and communication stuff. Um, and Andrew Wood is our campus pastor there, who you heard from a few weeks ago. And so a lot of people like, keep asking me, so what's it like now? Is it, is it better now? Like, are you got some relief? Because I've got my own business as well. So things were just really kind of overwhelming. And they're like, you know, are you feeling kind of that weight lifted now that you got the campus pastoring off your shoulders? And, and in many ways, yes. But in many ways, it's funny how life kind of swoops in and just occupies that space real fast. So I don't, I don't know how you guys are feeling right now, but it's sort of the last phase of winter, and I don't know, I kind of feel in a bit of a, a funk, right? Just life is overwhelming. It's that period of time where there's not a lot of, well, March break is coming, which is a good thing, but we haven't had a lot of breaks. Um, but I've, I've had some bright spots in the last few weeks, and, and I want to tell you about those, because what I got to do was I got to sit down with some pretty cool families in our church family from, from our different campuses. And so these people are some of the most interesting, some of the most resilient, uh, some of the most humble and joyful families I think I've met. And if you get the chance to meet them, I think you'll think the same way. And the thing with these families, though, is they are going through challenges that most of us can't even begin to imagine. We can't fathom what's going on in their lives. And yet, in spite of these circumstances, they're some of the most uh, centered, incredibly faithful, um, and just amazing people you'll meet. And so I'm going to share that with you this morning. We're in the middle of this recalculating series. We're in week four, where we're talking about the family journey. And uh, the thing is, when we bring up family, often, especially in a, in a place like a church, we... we seem to come at it from the position of like the quote-unquote ideal family, right? You got the husband, wife, a couple of happy, healthy kids, but the truth is most of the families among us or people we know, they're not fitting that picture. They're not fitting that mold necessarily. So we're addressing a lot of different topics so far. You've, if you've been tracking along with the series, you've heard about, you know, scenarios in which maybe husband and wife aren't spiritually aligned. They're not of the same faith. Uh, we've looked at blended families. We've looked at families who have been impacted by divorce and single parenthood. And so this morning, uh, I'm going to talk to you guys about families who have children with special needs or disabilities which is a pretty fascinating topic. Um, I'll admit right up front, I have very limited experience in this realm. My, my oldest son, he's 11, he's got some very mild kind of learning disabilities and, and some other things, a mild case of inattentive disorder. He can't focus on more than one thing at a time with his concentration. So I at least know that experience of like knowing there's something going on with your kid and you gotta go through all the assessment and diagnosis and kind of what that's like. But, but again, this is mild stuff. Um, we have some friends, uh, my wife and I, we have friends both within the church and outside the church who are dealing with things like obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, ADHD, ODD, which is a, um, oppositional defiant disorder, which is a very challenging thing to deal with a kid who, who just responds back at you with, with kind of a lot of animosity. Uh, friends with kids on the autism spectrum, these sorts of things. So a little bit of, of experience, but what I want to do is really get deep into this. So what I did is I sat down with four different families in our church who are dealing with, with situations with their children in which they have some sort of disability or special need. Um, four of those, or out of those four families, three of them have kids on the autism spectrum, and two of those three on the autism spectrum have other challenges, uh, a genetic disorder and some developmental disorders, and those two kids, they're actually nonverbal, so they cannot communicate with you by speech. They will not speak 
to you. The fourth family I, I met with, a little different, not so much you know, mental or cognitive or, or developmental challenges, but a, a rare bone disease, which has resulted in, in the need for a lot of ongoing surgery. Um, their child you know, is, is deaf in one ear, uh, their child suffers from paralysis on one side, which affects her facial features. One side of her face is paralyzed. Um, and if she doesn't have these surgeries, she will go completely deaf, she will become blind, and it could be fatal. So these surgeries are a necessity, and, and she has to endure this over and over. So, you know, when we tackle this sort of topic, of course, it's really huge, right? I, I talked to four families with four unique scenarios, so there's no way I could cover the breadth of this. Like, this encompasses mental, emotional, physical, all these sorts of needs, but at least know that I'm coming at it from the direct experience of these four families and what they shared with me, and, and we're going to dive into what the Bible might have to teach us as well. So, to kind of get this started, I want to kind of set the scene for you guys. Um, for those of you who are parents, those of you who aspire to be parents, or those of you at least who, you know, have seen younger siblings get born, you know that kind of situation. It's, it's one of life's most exciting experiences. A new baby's about to, to come into the world, right? You're expecting this. I know for me, all of our three kids, it was a very surreal thing. Like, it just felt unreal. Like, I'm going to be a dad. Uh, you know, I'm going to welcome this kid into the world. He's going to be dependent on me. I've got to care for them. I get to see them grow and, and develop and become this person of themselves that God has created them to be, and it's all very exciting. But underneath that, there's, there's this subtle thing, right? With every, with every ultrasound, with every doctor's checkup, with every milestone they have to meet, you, you have that little bit of fear of, well, what happens if something's wrong with my child? What happens if, if there's something that, that makes that child not healthy? What am I going to do? So take that and, and put yourself in that scenario and imagine for a second that that fear comes true, that something seems to be wrong. Your, your child hasn't met a significant milestone. They're not walking or talking at the right time. Or maybe there's some sort of episode like the failure of a motor function or, or an illness or a seizure or something strikes them. And then you have to go through this huge process of uncertainty, of, of tests, of assessments, of diagnosis, of waiting, of not knowing, not knowing whether this is just like a a small temporary blip, a little thing that's happened and then you're going to move on, or if this is going to completely route your family on a whole new path for the rest of your lives, and you don't know until you get, get some answers. Well, the families I met with, you know, they've gone through all these diagnoses, they, they've experienced this experience, and they'll share with you probably what you might expect, that one of the things that, first things that strikes them is the question, why? Why me? Why my child? God, why would you do this? Why would you allow this? And you might expect them to be angry, but the interesting thing is none of them said anything about anger. One parent actually just said it wasn't anger. He said it was more like sadness. It's this deep, deep, profound sadness. Another said it's a hard pill to swallow. No one wants to know something is going on with your child. These parents described at, at the time of the diagnosis feeling completely overwhelmed not knowing what to do, not knowing how to process this news. They had feelings of guilt and self-blame, like, is this me? Is it something I did? Did I cause this somehow? Like, some of these disorders, you have to understand, are genetic, and they come through either the father or the mother. So imagine knowing that that gene was passed on to your child from you. And you know you can't control it, but you can't help but wonder, like, I, I, this, is, this is me. I'm somehow responsible for this. Or some of them mentioned like a, a spiritual side of things, like, God, are you punishing me? Is this the result of some sin in my life? Like, like, why would you be doing this, God? 
Now, the, the families I spoke with, they've been through all these sorts of emotions, and they've all come out the other side of it. They, they've all gone through it, which is pretty amazing, and I don't doubt that they, that they have a huge faith in God, and that's the reason that they've come out so, so well on the other side. Because they've, they've also told me about, you know, being in settings like support groups and, and other scenarios where they're interacting with similar parents, and these parents that they're encountering are bitter. These parents are angry. They're going through life with a woe-is-me attitude. They're still asking that question, why? But the families I met with, they have this amazing resilience, and some of them just even had this contentment with their circumstances, which was, like, mind-boggling. Uh, one mother said to me, everyone has their thing to deal with, and this is ours. She just put it that simply. And that led me to realize that these families, they are just like everybody else and absolutely nothing like everybody else. And, and the reason I say that what I'm getting at here is, is that we all have common experiences in our own families. We all have challenges, we all have failures as, as members of our families, whether you're a parent or a sibling or a son or daughter. We all fall short of the ideal in some way. One article I read on this topic uh, put it this way. It says, the whole human race lives with the reality of imperfection. Everyone experiences less than ideal conditions. We are all broken in some way. The handicaps we live with are simply a matter of degree. And of course, for these families, the degree is very significant. You know, every challenge you may know in your family life is just amplified for them. But the point is that, you know, disabilities or any sort of human pain or suffering that we experience are the symptoms of a fallen world, right? All these things, big or small. Imperfection and pain are the result of mankind's rebellion against God. It, it entered into the world when, when Adam and Eve decided, you know what? We don't need to depend on this creator who created this whole system. We don't need to depend on him to continue to sustain it. We'll just figure out our own way to do it, the way we think is best. And so things start to kind of crumble under that premise, right? So now whether or not you guys, I know this is a very kind of niche, narrow topic, so whether or not you know or live with or you met somebody or somebody in your life kind of deals with this scenario of, of special needs or disability, this is some common ground for us this morning. We all deal with pain, suffering, in some way. And I think the most kind of valuable thing I can do for you today is give you an understanding of the reality of what these families go through and how they cope and how they've kind of arrived at this amazing place of contentment and, and even joy. Uh, so to do this, I'm going to frame everything under some, you know, sort of familiar language, some common statements you might hear from, from any parent, right? And I want to kind of springboard off these as a way of taking kind of what we know and, and being able to empathize with a world that we don't know. With, with something more significant that we may have never experienced. So you kind of see as we go. So let me throw the first one out there. Any parent will tell you, I love my kids unconditionally. Love my kids no matter what. I will always love them no matter what they're going through. And this is absolutely true for any parent of a child with disabilities or with special needs. And that may seem obvious to you. You may say, okay, yeah, I kind of figured that much. But, but it's not obvious to everyone. Uh, one family told me about how often they encounter people, seeing them go through what they go through, and these people ask, why do you do it? Why do you continue to put yourself through this? Why do you care for this child? Why don't you just put them in some sort of institution and let somebody else deal with this? Why do you drive yourself to this, this breaking point? And while many parents will tell you they have that unconditional love, there's also many who who struggle and fail at, at expressing this to their kids. There are many parents who have chosen that other path, who have put their kids into an institution 
and left them there. There are many kids who don't even get visits from their families. They are just being cared for by the system. Now, fortunately for the families I spoke with, that's not the case. They all expressed their deep love for their kids. They said things like, all children are a gift. Uh, one, one mother said, my child is here to help me to question what is the purpose of my life. One said, he pushes your limits, but we wouldn't have it any other way. One said, we believe we received this child because God felt we could handle it. And another mother said, my child is perfect. Quite simple. And I'll be really honest, and this is going to sound probably terrible, and maybe you'll think I'm a horrible person now, but when I heard stuff like that, especially my child is perfect, I was shocked. I thought, how can you say your child is perfect with everything that's going on with them? But then as I talked more with them, I got to understand. I got to understand that perspective. So here's a little example. Uh, the kids with autism that I, that I met in those families, especially the ones who are nonverbal, who can't respond to you, they have some very unusual behaviors, or at least unusual to us, things we wouldn't, wouldn't kind of understand. It seems disruptive. But parents were, were kind of keying me to the fact that despite these sort of disruptive, kind of almost aggressive-looking behaviors, there's nothing malicious to them. There's no malicious intent in their actions ever. They are perfect in that they're innocent. They're, they're like mostly incapable of sin. Think about it. They don't even have the capacity to lie or manipulate the way we can. They can't even communicate with words, right? And they live with this sort of freedom that most of us don't even understand. The other thing, you know, that, that kind of speaks to this idea that they're perfect is that for all of these children, I heard incredible testimonies from their parents about how even in spite of their disability or their sickness, they bring people together and they minister to them. And I'm going to kind of talk to you more about that later, but, but they have this impact on people around them, which is amazing. Now, with this kind of unconditional love for a child, there comes some heartache too. Any parent, you know, will know this, that you love your kid that much, you're going to worry about them. So think about having to go through this. Think about knowing your child is vulnerable. Think about your child having no concept of stranger danger, and they would just walk off with anybody for any reason. Or think about something simple like this. Your child loves and is drawn to water, but they will never know how to swim. So it's a constant danger, the one thing they love. They love to play and they love to do. Or think about having to constantly monitor your child's medical condition because if you don't, at a moment's notice, you could have a life-threatening uh, catastrophe on your hands. Things could go wrong in a second, right? So you have to constantly be on that. These are tough things to deal with. Think about just the social impacts. Um, think about the heartache of knowing that your child has never been and probably never will be invited to a birthday party or your child being bullied or picked on or whispered about just because of the way they look or the way they behave. And they develop insecurities on that. So the ones who are aware of what's going on, they develop body image issues because of that. Think about people, instead of them coming to you and asking you, hey, what's your situation? Well, what, why is your child doing that? What's, what's up with your child? They just whisper behind your back and never actually address it to your face. Or think about being asked to leave a store or another public place because they think your child's behavior is disruptive. You know, one parent, even though she expressed this sincere conviction that her child was perfect, she also told me about the heartbreak she feels sometimes when she goes outside and she sees her neighbor's kids and she just realizes how more high-functioning they are, how further advanced they are 
how they're just working at a higher level than her kid probably can hope to. And then there are fears about their future. One parent said, releasing my child into the world absolutely frightens me. Another family shared their biggest concern is that, you know, if it's likely that their, their vulnerable child is going to outlive them. So what happens when they're not there anymore to look after them? What happens if he doesn't have a family caregiver? Will he become a victim of neglect, of abuse? Or, or the family with the, the child with the rare bone disease, they said, you know, for us, we have to sit and watch our child go through these surgeries and have to grow up in a way that most kids don't have to, right? She has to mature, like, at a rapid pace to deal with this stuff. Okay, so that's a lot, and that's just even the, you know, just kind of getting started. Um, another thing parents will say to you is, I would do anything for my kids. I will tell you, I will do anything for my kids. But then I listen to these people, and I realize they actually do do anything and everything for their kids. They, they, they bring this statement to, to life. It's true for them. You know, they humbly say to me things like, yeah, well, it tests you a lot. And then they tell me how it tests them. Well, it's, it's a massive impact on time. They've got to drive to therapies. Those therapies are not always close together. They're spread out. They're not close to home. They go to special parenting classes. They're doing all this extra stuff the average parent does not have to do. They have to constantly fight for their children. You know, support systems can be very limited, can be very difficult to navigate, so they have to fight to get what they need. Sometimes they're put on waiting lists that they have no hope of ever getting the support that they need. Those of us who have parents who are in school, you know, you sometimes you have to interject and, and speak up for your child to get something that they need or to address an issue at the school. For these parents, especially ones with, with nonverbal children, they have to constantly advocate for their kids and be a voice for their kids, day after day. It doesn't stop. These families have to make significant sacrifices from things like their finances and their own futures. They've got to pay for these treatments. One mom said, you know, retirement looks very different for me and my husband than other people we know. Or even just the little, little conveniences, you know, it's, it's a crazy morning, you're having a rough start to the day, you can't just throw a granola bar in a lunchbox, because you have to spend all weekend cooking everything from scratch, because your child is on a special diet. And that brings me to another point, you know, a lot of parents will say, you know, being a parent is the hardest job in the world, and that's probably true. But again, not more true than it is for these families. Um, in addition to kind of the, the activity and the ongoing stuff you have to do as a parent, there's the, the mental and emotional and even physical toll. So again, if you know anything of this, take what you know and amplify that. You know, if you have a vulnerable child, you have to always be aware and alert, ensuring their safety, providing every bit of care that they need and making sure that, that they're not endangering themselves. Or even just going into a social setting, worrying about you know, is my child fitting in right now? Or are they being bullied or, or made fun of? Or, you know, something going on that they're not even aware of, that, that kids are, are saying things about them and they don't even know. And if any of you parents in the room think you don't get out much, well, imagine these parents. They never go out. They have no capacity for friends of their own. They have no capacity for a social life. They can't even go on family vacations together because what if your child is not able to travel easily or can't get the care that they need when they're away from home? One of the things that makes parenting is difficult is discipline. Discipline's always a challenge. My kids run crazy and I'm constantly trying to rein them in. And, and then I think about these parents who tell me about how more exhaustive it is for them to teach their kids things. Some of them have to be put in special programs because they can't even do it on their own. 
They have to teach and reteach very simple concepts like the word no and what that means, or what it means to wait for something. They have to teach every, every excursion out of the house as a teaching opportunity. Every trip to the grocery store, every walk in the park has to, an opportunity to teach their kids and help form them and shape them. And again, if, if any of your parents ever kind of think, I have no idea what I'm doing as a parent, these guys, they literally don't know what they're doing because they don't know what the next step is. There, there is no precedent for them to follow. Every move is a question for them. And so they describe feeling like failures, failures for their child with special needs, but also failures for their other kids who they're trying to support, right? So they say, you know, I feel like a failure because I feel like I'm letting them both down at the same time. One family even talked about the, the, the kind of manifestation of stress on themselves as parents, that it was physically affecting them. They have more illnesses and ailments than, than a lot of their friends. They have physical pains. They're experiencing weight gain, all because they're dealing with so much stress day in and day out. So now throw work into the mix. No downtime. They go to work and they come home and they're on constantly. Not a moment to themselves. They're thinking about their kids even when they're at work. One mother told me about, you know, a period early in her child's life where this child, because of their autism, was awake for 72 hours at a stretch. And she's a single working mom. And she has to stay up and make sure he's not doing anything to harm himself. Or the other family told me about just the emotional toll of seeing their child in the ICU time and time again, bandaged and, and full of tubes after surgery. Now, some advice some parents will give you is, well, you know what, parenting is hard, but you've got to carve out some time for your marriage. And that's good advice. I agree with that. But what do you do when you can't just hire a babysitter at a moment's notice? What do you do when you don't even have time or energy for each other to begin with? And on top of those logistics of just time and energy, parents of special needs have challenges a lot of other parents don't in how they relate to each other. Sometimes they process their situation very differently emotionally. One parent is dealing with it well, the other is a, is a wreck. They can't handle this. It's essential that they be on the same page in their approach to the disability and how to parent. And so sadly, actually what you see is a lot of single parents in these scenarios. These marriages fall apart. One, one parent can't take it. Last thing I want to touch on, last piece of the family dynamic, siblings, right? Siblings, that's always a, a fun factor in a family. Well, I wasn't even thinking about that when I entered into this until I started talking to these people. What about the sibling? Most of these kids have brothers or sisters. So understandably, at the moment of diagnosis, the parent's primary focus shifts to the special needs child. And most of these siblings, they're great support too. And they understand that the parents have to give that attention. But they're still being deprived of some of that essential love and, and attention that they need. On top of that, you know, they're looking around, seeing their friends, hanging out with their brothers and sisters. They don't have a brother and sister that looks like everybody else. They can't relate and do the things other siblings do with each other. And then they're out on the school ground, and either they're getting picked on themselves because of their sibling, or they're watching out for their sibling to make sure they're okay and not getting picked on. So by all accounts, they don't get a typical childhood. So I know that's kind of a lot. I just threw a bunch at you, and let me tell you, that's just like the tip of the iceberg, right? I, I spent hours with these people talking through this stuff and being kind of amazed by what they go through. But I want to kind of shift gears right now, and, and so let's kind of park that for a moment, the reality of what people deal with, and let's look at what Scripture might have to tell us. And, you know, if you're like me, and you're like, okay, I want to 
dig into what God might have to say to us about this topic. You know, open the Bible. Where did, where did we kind of get pictures of people with disabilities? Well, I'll go to the Gospels because Jesus healed a lot of people, right? And these stories are great because they show, you know, the character of God, his compassion for the needs of the hurting and the helpless. And they give us faith to know that there's a God who cares and who can heal, and, and I believe God does and, and can heal people. They give us faith in that, but at the same time, I worry that this, this is a kind of a difficult or unhelpful place to start. You know, Jesus in these times, he's, so, some of these times we can see that he's clearly trying, trying to demonstrate who he is by working a miracle. He is the son of God. Other times we can see he's he simply worked out of compassion. Somebody confronts him when he's on his way somewhere else and he just, he has compassion for them and heals them. And that's amazing, again, because it shows us the character of God. But these are miracles, and so by definition, they're supernatural. They're not the norm, right? And while we can pray for that, and we, we may have heard stories of people who have experienced some amazing healing, we can also look around and see it's not the common experience either. I'm sure there were plenty of people living during Jesus' ministry who, who wanted that healing and didn't get it. He's he had a very short uh, span, to, time span to his ministry. He's moving from town to town, seeing crowds of people. And that's the case for the, the people I've met. You know, these are some of the most faithful people in our church. And some of them told me about praying and begging God to take away this condition. But of course, they haven't experienced that. You know, one family told me that their child came up to, to dad one day and said, Dad, I don't think you have a very strong faith. Dad said, okay, <laughs> what makes you say that? And she said, well, because I'm not healed, right? That's heartbreaking to hear your kids say that. So this is one of the reasons why I think, you know, focusing on these miraculous healings may be, may be a little bit unhelpful, and, and also because maybe they lead us to some wrong conclusions, can lead us to think, think things like, like this child, that, well, maybe we just don't have enough faith, right? That's, that's our problem. Or maybe we think that God is punishing us for some sin, which, which probably isn't the case. Or it puts too much focus, again, what Jesus was doing was not just, he didn't just come to heal the physical wounds, but he was coming to save the spirit too, right? Save the soul. So it shifts our focus in the wrong spot. And I think it's kind of helpful to see that the, the disciples made some of those same mistakes in their thinking. At one point, you know, Jesus has met with a blind man and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, neither this man or his parents sinned. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. It's pretty cool. So I think if we're going to look for answers in the Bible, we need to kind of maybe pull back a bit, uh, broaden our search, and look at some bigger, bigger principles. So there's three things I kind of landed on. Uh, the first one is, is this. I think that, you know, we see that God does redeem all types of suffering. We have to first start by dealing with the problem of pain, the problem of suffering. You know, again, that question, why? Why does God allow these things to happen? And we can't probably answer that all neatly and tidily this morning. But, but firstly, it comes back again to that idea that we live in a fallen world, a fallen, imperfect world. God doesn't necessarily inflict these things on, on people in particular for particular reasons. But they're the consequences of a once perfect world that's become separated. There's this wedge between it and its creator, us and our creator. But God can still use these afflictions for good in a fallen world. Paul writes about this. One example is he says, you know, that suffering and hardship that we experience can develop our character. In Romans, he says, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials for that we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. And strength of character, excuse me, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. See that, you know, He's taking, you know, physical problems and showing it how it leads to a spiritual solution. It, 
it strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And he says this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us, because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. You notice it says that God strengthens us through trials so that we're confident in our hope of salvation, as I said. So he, God's going to save us. He loves us, and there's that in it. So we can trust him, and we can depend on him. And I think that's probably the most significant part of our character that gets developed through these times is that dependence on God. And Paul even experienced this firsthand. He had some unknown affliction. Nobody really knows quite what it was, but he referred to it as the thorn in his side. And he kind of embodies a little bit what we're talking about today because he says he prayed for it many times for God to take it away, and God didn't take it away. He says, So to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away, and each time he said, My grace is all you need, my power works best in weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's pretty cool. Paul says, you know, he gave me this thing, this ailment, whatever this was, to keep me from becoming proud. And the purpose of that, the purpose of kind of humbling me was so that I could see that God's grace is all that I need. There's an interesting message from God in there where, where Paul says, God said to me, my power works best in weakness. Pretty interesting. God's power, his love for us, his compassion for us, it's best demonstrated. Of course, it makes sense when you think about it. God's love, his power, what he wants to give us, it's going to work best through those who need it the most, right? So that leads me, leads me to the second point I want to draw out of Scripture. When you kind of understand that, then you see that, well, God actually does choose to use the people we would consider the least or those who need him the most. Those are the people he often works through, the ones who need him. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote that one way God gets our attention and, and turns it toward him is through pain and suffering. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. When when we're preoccupied, God uses that pain and suffering to get our attention and turn us back to him. I think Paul would agree with this. He he expresses similar thoughts, that God gets our attention by working in waves and in the lives of people that most of us would least expect. He said, God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose the things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. And he chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. And so I think we see this pattern all throughout the Bible. If you kind of consider, you know, the events of of what took place and how God worked, you know, when, when he formed this nation of Israel, brought them out of Egypt, who does he choose to be his spokesperson to communicate to those people? He chooses Moses, a guy who a lot of scholars believe had some sort of speech impediment or speech disability, because he uses this very peculiar phrase to object against God. He said, don't use me, because I'm heavy of mouth and heavy of tongue. We're not sure what that means. Maybe it was just fear, but we think maybe it was something physical. You know, God picks out people, and he doesn't choose the great, powerful warrior, the biggest in the tribe. He picks the weak little shepherd, David. 
Jesus comes, and he doesn't just spend his all, all his time ministering to the religious crowd. He goes out and he hangs out with the poor, the sick, and the lepers. And even just think about Jesus himself, right? God, God says, okay, I'm going, to, I'm going to come into this world I created. I'm going to come and bring this salvation that you all need. I'm going to meet the needs that you're, you're craving for by taking on a human body, limiting my power to this, being born as a baby in poverty, right? He uses the things we would not expect. And the, the idea that God uses those things, the, the, the sort of, again, what we might consider as, as weak or, or as unexpected, it's, it's right in line with what the families I interviewed seem to say about themselves. They, they express this experience themselves. They all had this firm belief that God has a plan for their child and that that child was put in their lives by God for a reason. You know, one mother said, my child, I don't see him as a burden. I see him as an assignment from God. And then she laid out this really neat picture for me. She said, I picture my t- child as a rope, and God's at the end of the rope. And I'm, I'm down here, and I'm holding on to this end of the rope. And as I'm caring for this child, I'm holding on to this rope, and I, I'm pulling on this rope, and that child is drawing me closer to God. And I thought, whoa, what, a, like what an amazing perspective that is. And funny enough, there was, you know, some other common threads I heard. Two families said the exact same thing, almost word for word. They said, you know what, before my child was born, one of the things I pray for the most, I prayed for patience a lot. But I don't think God just goes, okay, you have patience. They said, I think God gives us an opportunity to develop patience. And that's where my child comes in. All these families agree that their children make people better that they grow and develop the people around them. They have the, the ability to teach and instill in you something that you couldn't arrive at on your own. Things like deep patience and tolerance, compromise and understanding. They, they force people outside of their comfort zones. You know, one child was described as, they said, the parents said, you know, it's almost like she has her own hospital ministry, very unofficial, but she spends so much time in these, these ICUs speaking about her faith to other kids. It's amazing. Some of them said, you know what? My autistic child, he just makes people's day when they see that they can actually interface with him and, and, and enjoy who he is in spite of his disability. Now, the last thing I want us to see is that God puts a calling on us too. He calls us to love the quote-unquote least. We know that God's character is divine, defined by love and compassion for his children, and he instructs us to model ourselves after his characteristics, right? He, he gave us Jesus to show us how to live that out. And he loved those in, who society would view as the untouchable or, you know, the unknowable, the unlovable, the outcast. And there's so many examples throughout the Bible of that that we could look at. We don't have time to go through them all, but there's one great one um, that Jesus spoke on. And, and I want you to kind of remember, too, that Jesus didn't just come to die and and, and provide that salvation, though that is the primary purpose, but he also came to model a life for us, a human life for us, and this is what he taught. He said, when you put on a luncheon or a banquet, don't invite your friends and your brothers and relatives and rich neighbors, for they'll invite you back, and that will be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. You know, it's just like how we need God's love, and we can never repay Him for that, for what He gives to us. He says, you know, do the same thing, right? Love those who can't repay you. 
So to kind of close this up and, and kind of wrap things up, I, I want to kind of take everything and kind of piece it together. We've got, you heard about the reality of what these families deal with. We've, we've looked at some big principles in Scripture. Now let's kind of ask, well, what would God have us as Renew Church do? How does God redeem these families? How is He going to work through them and through us? Well, I want to kind of approach it from two angles. I want to, uh, to start with what these families may need from you, if you being maybe somebody who doesn't have that experience with a special needs or a disability. What these families need from you is to be known and to belong. I actually asked each of them, because I said, I, I, I don't know what we need to do as a church family to encourage and support you, so can you, just, can you tell me? And one answered, you know what, just understanding is huge. We need to understand the daily challenges these families go through in our church and outside of our church. Right? And I hope we shed a little light on that today. We need to understand the children. We need to understand their disabilities and what they are and how they affect their behavior and, and what it all means and, and how much they can comprehend in their emotional state. Because if we can kind of get some understanding of this stuff, then we avoid a lot of the judgment and a lot of the discrimination and a lot of the stigma that they actually experience from a lot of other people. And we get ourselves out of our own discomfort as well. You know, one mother put it this way. She said, we all have pain and struggles, so just take time to slow down and be aware of each other's humanity. It's, it's like amazing advice for anybody, right? Another family told me that one specific, they need is, one specific thing they need is simply the peace of mind to know they can come, they can bring their child, they can be accepted and included, right? So the next thing we need to do is, is be accepting, but more importantly, help these families and these children feel a sense of belonging, because acceptance and belonging, I think, are two different things. Uh, there's a theologian named John Swinton who wrote this. He said, the problem we have with society is a real emphasis and a quite right emphasis on inclusion. I think at one level that's fine. However, inclusion is not simply enough. To include people in society is just to have them there. To belong, you have to be missed. There's something really, really important about that. People need to long for you, to want you to be there. When you're not there, they should go looking for you. It's a pretty strong challenge and, and maybe a tall order. Um, I know for me, I, I felt like, how, how do I even do that? So I, I want to give you a little advice, again, that came direct from the mouths of these family, families. You know, for those with children who are, are mentally or developmentally challenged, you have to understand that they might not be able to make or maintain a friendship. They need someone like you or your kids to come alongside them and just do it, just be their friend. Because what you need to know is you might not receive back the sort of response you would expect. It may not be a two-way relationship. They may not be, be able to communicate with you the way you're familiar with. They might not express themselves through emotion or physical contact like, like you know of other people. But you have to put in the work to get to know them and to get past your own discomfort. Another family told me to keep in mind that it's the little things that make a big difference. A prayer, a text, a note, right? These are the things that are going to show them that they belong, that we've gone out looking for them because we missed them. And they said, don't be shy about it. They said, let us know when you do it. If you're praying for us, tell us. We want to know. And they said, you, you might not even know when is a good time to reach out, but they said, just whenever it's on your heart. A lot of people feel uncomfortable. I don't know, you know, when I should should contact you or when I should kind of express that, this, that support. They said, anytime, and let us know you did it. And lastly, if you're really uncomfortable, because it, it, it's a factor, you can be uncomfortable interacting with a special needs child. If that's really a, a big barrier for you, get to know the sibling if there's a sibling. 
because they need that attention and they need that acceptance as well. And I actually would add one last thing is, is do pray for them because I think, you know, as much as we say, you know, these miraculous healings Jesus performed aren't the common experience. Well, what, when they did happen, they were in a community, community prayer. It was when people weren't praying for themselves, but they were praying for somebody else, when they took that person and brought them to Jesus. So pray for them. Now, the second thing I want to kind of, there's the second angle I want to take is I want you guys to know what you need from these families. Because there's something you can gain here too. You need to be challenged and you need to learn and you need to grow. These families, what I've come to find is they have something probably most of us lack in a big way. They have this immense dependence on God. Jody Erickson Tata was a, a woman who suffered a diving accident as a teenager, left her quadriplegic. She's written a lot on the topic and she said, the weaker I was in that thing, meaning my wheelchair, the harder I leaned on you. She's speaking to God. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. It never would have happened had you not given me the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. So when you read the Bible, come back to what we were saying earlier, you kind of see God paint this picture of dependence through the way Jesus interacted with people like, you know, the poor and the outcast and the disadvantaged. And you saw them lean on God and, and trust in Him, and He praised them for their faith. And I think it's hard today because here in Cambridge or, you know, wherever you're from, we live in a pr fairly privileged, affluent culture. You may not see a lot of poor and disadvantaged people around you. We have a lot of convenience, comfort, and wealth. And so families with disabilities, if you know anybody in this situation, they might very well be the closest you got to knowing someone who truly depends on God, who depends on Him for everything. As I spoke to these families, I discovered that prayer was a huge element in all of their lives. They've been forced to lean on their faith. They've been forced to be vulnerable. One mother said, for everything I do, I pray. For every little minute of the day, every activity, every time we leave the house, I pray. She said, I pray in the, the morning and I pray in the evening for three things, for strength, courage, and wisdom to get through the day. And even though these families, like I said, you know, have begged God for some miraculous healing and, and didn't get it, I did hear stories of some very miraculous answers to prayer. That kind of blew me away. It, it, was, it was kind of crazy stuff. Right? One, one mom told me about her autistic child running out into an extremely busy street in Milton. She could not react or respond. The best that could happen was she was going to get run over as well, and all she could do was say a quick prayer, and what she described was a moment of time standing still and him returning back to safety. And when she said time standing still, she wasn't talking figuratively, and this kind of puzzled me. She was talking very literally. Another family told me about uh, an expensive new treatment they had to have, and the, the first treatment was $1,500 that they did not have, and they prayed, and they got a random gift from somebody who knew nothing about this in the form of a check for the exact amount. Another told me about their Renew group, praying for their daughter before surgery that, that the surgeon would not have to shave the child's head, and, and the mother and father thought, well, that's ridiculous. There's no way to do the surgery without that, but go ahead and pray. And sure enough, the surgeon broke protocol. He could not bring himself to do it, did not shave her head, perform the surgery, and let her keep her hair. Or, or a child lost at a beach, again, a child who's drawn to water, separated from parents, uh, very well could have run into the ocean and drowned, later found safely with an elderly couple, um, a man with a cane who couldn't walk very well, and seconds later, when they turned around to thank them, they were gone, and they didn't see them ever again. Just amazing stuff, really weird stuff. So I think these families have a lot to teach us. 
you know, Jody Erickson Tata, again, she said, maybe the truly handicapped people are the ones who don't need God as much. And I think maybe that's true. So I don't know if any of you, um, if there's anybody in this campus or you know anybody in these situations, but um, if you do, I have something I want to say to them and to you, that we want to include you, we want you to belong, but we need these families not to be shy. Come, bring your families, be part of this community. You know, shake things up if that's what's going to happen. We love that, and, and to whatever extent you're able. And I also want to say to them or you, you know what? The truth is, honestly, yes, a bunch of us are going to feel very uncomfortable. We are uncomfortable around people with disabilities that when we don't know that world and we don't experience that, but we need to learn, and we want you to teach us. Tell us how we can come alongside you. We're, we're not sure, and we don't want to be a further imposition on you, so we need you just to tell us and to help us in that. But more than all of that, I think what these families have to contribute to our church family is that often we think, well, we ought to be ministering to them, but they can minister to us, and they can disciple us. Again, we have so much to learn. We need to hear the stories of how God is working in their families. We need to learn how they depend on God and how they pray and lean on Him, and, and yet, in spite of the most difficult circumstances, find contentment and joy and humility in hardship. And through all this, I, I kind of feel reticent that I'm using these words like, them and us, or you and us, because uh, that's not the case, right? It's the best way I can do it, but we're all family in Christ, and that's the point of this series. In, in spite of whatever family circumstances we've, we've got going on, we are a family here, and we want to be that family. So my prayer for today and for this series is just that, that we would learn how to live as the family God intended us to be.